Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, before, I, before I jump in, uh, just a word about that procession. Like what? What the Lord did there, I do those all the time at the Steubenville conferences or other young adult events. I've never had a procession like that. And I was, I was stricken the entire time with just the, the tremendous depth of God's love for this room and for each and every single one of us, each and every single one of you, but, but even myself. I was, I was totally overwhelmed by, by the Lord just wanting to show us his care. And it struck me so, so fittingly, like this comes while we're in the midst of the Eucharistic revival and this, our hearts were literally being revived by the divine physician in real time. And, and often those processions can be intense or there can be some grating feeling or something kind of wound up. There was a, a tenderness in this room and there was a peace and an openness to God at the level of which I've not experienced before. So I just want to name that for you and that you could carry that with you. It was, it was unlike processions that I've done before. And I just was so honored. I, was, I hate that there's a camera because you could see my face. <laughs> I was so moved, I was actually, I was praying, this will sound weird, but I was praying for death. I was like, Lord, can I go now? Because this is like the perfect place. I mean, the Eucharist is the touch point between heaven and earth, right? And I'm in the privileged position of processing with our Lord, who's touching earth and inviting earth to touch heaven and, and linking the two so concretely that we can see it, behold it, and even feel it, many of us. I was like, look, this is, this is it. Can I go home? Can I just go? I wanted to go home. And not to Milwaukee. I was like, I just want to go home, home. Like, home. That was so beautiful. Speaking of home, uh, I'm, so, I'm so honored to be with you here because I've known about this conference for a very long time. I'm from the Archdiocese of Milwaukee. We have a women's conference there, Women of Christ, which is very beautiful. And I work with them every single year extensively. A lot of my family's involved. So we often think of this as a sister conference. Your leadership and our leadership, they're very close. They walk with each other. So I've wanted to be here for this conference for a very long time and just haven't been able to make it. So greatly honored that, that this is the time. And, and the timing is, is really funny for me. I... Uh, a couple of beautiful things have happened this last week. A week ago, I, was, I live at our seminary in Milwaukee, and we hosted a national basketball tournament. We had 12 seminaries from around the country come in to, to play basketball in this tournament, and 350 men gathered at our seminary to compete. And, and the culmination of the event is on Saturday night when after the last game finishes, and these are these are bitter struggles on the basketball court because these guys are athletes who know they may not play sports again, so everything is out there on the court. <laughs> but as soon as the last game finishes, it's a tradition, everybody, most people, light up a cigar. And the entire gym and all the rooms around the gym instantly fill with the incense of cigar smoke. And, and, and the, the men have just come off the court, and everybody's sweaty, they've been yelling, and they're all smoking cigars. It's the most testosterone-heavy place you can be. And I kid you not, in the middle of it, like through the smoke, one of the guys like, so what's up next for you, Father? Where are you going? <laughs> I was like, a place very different than this. <laughs> I'm going to go spend the weekend with like 2,700 women, <laughs> and mostly just women. I'm like, wow, that's a little bit of whiplash. <laughs> I said, amen, brother, amen. But in between those two things, something else beautiful happened. Um, Father Tim mentioned that we don't, as priests, get to show pictures of our children, uh, but we do often get to show pictures of those who are given to us in particular ways. And I'd like to show a picture here. So I did that 
as, as the cheapest opener for a women's conference you can have. <laughs> Show a baby. But I did that also to distinguish this from last weekend, like a group of men being brothers. And had I put this up in front of the guys, they'd be like, oh, yeah, cool, great, baby, awesome. Light up your cigar. Immediately, you have a very different response. But, but that's just right, actually. That's, that's just right. And I want to carry through this time with you this afternoon how important it is that we understand, understand ourselves as, as distinct from one another and we look to each other to celebrate those distinctions and differences and learn from each other in them and not be confused about what it is to go too far to the other side or to give up on what's so good here where we belong, me as a man, you as women. Before that, I will just say, this is little Anastasia Mary. My sister had this baby. She was born six days ago. I was able to meet her on Wednesday. So this is just three days ago. The best comment I got from somebody, oh, she has your eyes. <laughs> I kid you not. I was like, are you serious? Like that. First of all, it's my sister's baby. Second of all, like, her eyes are literally, they didn't open. <laughs> anyway, here we are. Women's conference, having met my little niece, and now uh, to just dive into Really the love of God. As our speakers have talked about this whole day, the love of God. I want to I draw that out and then place that before you specifically and ask you to really embellish or to, to uh, embrace and celebrate the love of God as women. And to let yourselves be loved, as Claire asked us at the beginning, as women. Because the love of God is personal, is particular, is, is more deeply in who we are, who we are created to be and what it looks like from the perspective of God for, for us to flourish. And the flourishing of the feminine heart is distinct from the flourishing of the man's heart. And when these things get confused, we get confused. And, and that is the hallmark of the chaos of our culture today is that kind of confusion. And so as a solution to that, I want to ask or present to you the proposal that, that the healing of our culture in many, many ways. And the healing of our church passes through the healing of, of women's hearts, of the heart of the woman. Because the heart of the woman actually sits at the center of so much of the story of our salvation. I called this talk, we didn't use titles, but I called this talk First Love's Eternal Echo. The eternal echo of our first love. And I want to trace that out because of things that have come to us both evident in the culture but also things that have been said to us in the tradition. St. John Paul II, who Archbishop Broglio, isn't it great having a bishop up here to lead us that way? Like, this is a man who's leading our bishops or helping the bishops to do the things that we need them to do. So we're so grateful for your leadership, Archbishop, as well as Bishop Fernandez here, like wonderful shepherds. Wonderful shepherds. We're blessed right now. Thanks be to God. John Paul II, 1986, he said this, As the family goes, so goes the nation. And so goes the whole world in which we live. Family falls apart, nation falls apart, world falls apart. And I would add to that in a special caveat, the conviction that I just stated that the healing of the family, the healing of the nation, and the healing of the world passes in a particular way through the healing of women. Because the sickness of the culture passes through a particular confusion about women. Most of history, we've been confused about woman. For much of history, it was a, a patriarchal society where women were treated as second-class citizens or as property or as non-equals. So for much of our story, we were confused about who woman is. And coming out of that confusion, we had the overcorrection of, of radical feminism, right, which sought to destroy 
the particular, specific, beautiful dignity of woman as compliment to the man and, and pushed women into an independence and, and a desire to not rely upon and to not need the help of the man. Now, we've come back from that in some ways, though, of course, it rages in many circles. But today, this moment has another flavor of confusion about women. It's the transgender movement. Now, what's happening in the, in the movement, the transgender movement, is, is very confusing. But it's especially confusing because it's a pursuit, at least through one lens. It's a pursuit of the destruction of women. And you can read everything that's happening in the trans movement around that, around a hatred for women, actually, and a mockery of who woman is. Either we have men pretending to and making a mockery, or pretending to be women and making a mockery of women, or we have women who are terrified of the gift of their femininity and want to flee from it, want to eliminate it, remove it, even from their bodies physically. And I just want to, I want to share something, a very specific anecdote here. But we had a speaker come to our seminary recently. He was a plastic surgeon, and he's an ordained deacon now as well. And he was sharing with us some statistics and their implication on women and confusion about women and why so much of the transgender movement swirls around the question of women and, and in particular, a fear of women and femininity. He pointed out that, this is, I'm going to talk about hardcore porn for a minute, but I'm not going to go into the details. He pointed out that the average age currently that we measure exposure to hardcore pornography is, is the age nine. That at nine years old in the U.S., we consider that the average age that someone, a young person, boy or girl, is exposed to pornography. And he said, and I'm not talking about nudity, I'm talking about hardcore pornography. So let's think about the implications again without going into details. In hardcore pornography, the woman is victimized. The woman is abused, is mocked, is treated like dirt. And he drew this out for me, and I've been praying with it and developing it ever since. But he said, look, what do you think happens in the, in the little girl's heart who sees that? Little girl who's 9 or 10 or 11, she doesn't know what that is because her parents haven't thought to talk to her about that, and they wouldn't talk to her about exactly what's going on there. But she concludes in her own little heart, well, that must be what, what happens when I grow up. That's what women do when I grow up. And it looks awful. And so the worst thing that could happen to me is I'd grow up into a woman with that kind of body. So why do you think that our statistics on those asking for hormone blockers, it's two-thirds women right now, according to NHS stats, that's the English group that does these studies, two-thirds women, and the average age is 12 to 14. As soon as puberty hits, why? Because they realize, oh my goodness, I'm becoming the thing I'm so scared to become. My, my womanhood is developing, and that means I'm going to have to do those things I saw that were so terrible. And so these hearts are woven with this dread of becoming the dread of becoming women, of developing into the great gift of what it is because even there, woman has been so confused or we've been so confused about woman that we don't know how to proceed any longer. It's a pandemic of hatred for woman. And when you, when you zoom out on that, it actually makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense that there would be a, a pandemic of hatred and even self-hatred of women and among women because this is the story of salvation. Remember how we started, right? In Genesis 2, the man was created alone first in the garden, working with God, sharing in his dominion. And something was missing. The Lord saw that it's not good for the man to be alone, and so he created a suitable helpmate, the resolution to attention in the created order. Woman enters into creation and resolves a dilemma even before the fall. John Paul II called her the last word of the creator. That God speaks to create. The last word he had to speak was woman. And then he was done. The creative project is finished with Eve. And so she brings rest to the man. 
ending a tension that was in, in, in the created order before the fall. So, of course, she'd be the target of the enemy, that he seduces Eve into sin. And then as the curse in Genesis 3 falls upon the serpent, the Lord says, I will put enmity. That is a really hard word for me. I've been saying it wrong. I just learned yesterday. I've been saying it wrong my whole life. I say enmity. It's enmity. E-N-M-I-T-Y. It's a, anyways, that's my little inner self speaking out loud there. I'm going to take a drink of water. The Lord said, I will put enmity, it's hard to say, enmity <laughs> between you and the woman. But from the beginning, from the fall, the serpent has hated the woman. And that means woman has been the particular subject of the enemy's rage. And we can trace that through the Old Testament in a number of ways. But of course, that rage would reach its, its apex as, as this final woman, the queen of heaven and earth, takes up flesh, is born and then opens her life, opens her heart, opens her womb, opens her entire existence to the power of God, and the incarnation begins, it happens, and the salvation unfolds from there. That from that point forward, the enemy has lost his hold. He, he grabbed his hold when Eve disobeyed. The woman, the new woman, the new Eve, the new mother of all the living who obeys, that's the moment when the enemy lost his hold. Because now we had the pathway to obedience a pathway that was established most perfectly in Christ Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he, as well, chooses the Father's will over and against the fears of his own flesh. But the woman's yes precedes, just as the woman's no preceded at the fall. And so until the final age, the enemy is going to hate woman and going to try to mock it, try to twist it, try to bend it. You advance through the scriptures to the part of the scripture that hasn't even happened yet, the book of Revelation, that hasn't occurred yet. Sometimes we forget that. I'm kind of obsessed with this point lately. This is an old book. It was written, some of it, thousands of years ago. But the last book hasn't happened yet. And so it's actually a book that isn't even. <laughs> it was, it is, and it always will be. We, we live inside of Scripture with respect to the story of salvation that God has revealed to us. When you look at Revelation, it actually is all about the woman. There are two women that are presented as, as opposites. One who's a, a friend of the serpent the whore of Babylon, and one who's a foe of the serpent and a friend of God, the woman clothed in the sun, crowned with stars. And then the whole of our story ends as Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, how adorned as a bride. Adorned as a bride. There's a way of reading the whole story of, of the history of salvation through the lens of woman, who woman is. How easy it is to be confused about that and how to turn against it with, with great ease. And so that's why this kind of gathering matters so profoundly, ladies, that you would gather this way with great frequency annually and as often as possible outside of this setting to be women together, to pray together, to not stand around with 250 others and smoke cigars, but to delight in babies <laughs> and everything else that's properly feminine in an ordered fashion so that you understand the gift of who you are and what it means to be a woman. And that, that helps man to realize who he is and what it means to be man. Adam understood himself in the light of Eve. We understand ourselves in the light of the church, in the light of our, the Blessed Virgin Mary. The whole created order is dyadic, man and woman, and you can't understand the whole without the other. And so the renewal, the restoration, the deepening of authentic feminism in the proper sense, not the vicious sense, a femininity that flowers, that actually restores more than we realize. And I'll sidebar here. 
This is why I do the work that I do, which is often women's conferences, but also women's vocations, and especially healing retreats for our consecrated religious women. Because our consecrated religious women stand as a, a sign par excellence of that final bride, and they bring down into the created order a revelation, an icon of who the church is as woman, as bride. And without her, when we take her out of the local church, we always get confused. Not about who imminent woman is, but who ultimate woman is. And without our religious sisters, we will continue to be confused about what and who woman is. So sisters, thank you. Yes. We have like 125 religious here. And sisters, we just thank you for saying yes to Jesus and for showing us what it looks like to forego the great goods of this earth and to, to be espoused to God. Because that too shows us something actually about all women. I want to go back to Genesis 2 for a moment. Remember, when we read the text, it's very brief because it's just narrating simple facts rather quickly. But the man who's at ill at ease has been cast into a deep sleep. And then the woman is created from his rib while he's sleeping. And scripture just says, the Lord God brought the woman to the man. And that is so important for you. It means that God created the woman somewhere else and she begins alone with God. Her relation to God is being somewhere else alone with him. And her first experience of God would be seeing the face of God who's just spoken his last word. And so the Sabbath begins. When creation's done, Sabbath begins. Worship, celebration. As God looks upon the woman, her experience of God would be God delighting in her and saying, at last, I'm finished. And I can bring you to the man and resolve this tension. That is woven into the heart of every single woman. To be found properly and comfortably at home alone with God. And we could, we could deduce from that a principle that says woman has a special competence for depth in the interior life, of being alone with God in prayer, regardless of her state in life. And I've experienced this, we all have, but in the ministry that I do with all of these women of all different walks of life, very often I'll experience and I'll find women sharing with me stories of this ache for God and this deep capacity to develop quickly in the interior life, much more quickly than men. And it's not a comparative that one is better than the other. But man is properly oriented to the things that we see in the first man, the things we see developed and perfected in Christ Jesus. Woman properly oriented to the things of the first woman and to those of the Blessed Virgin Mary. A, a pondering heart, a contemplative heart, a heart that belongs to God. And see, what confuses us so much as human beings so often is that we're, always, we're all trying to figure out who we are. At the first moment of our birth, as soon as we can open our eyes, once Abigail was able to open her eyes, she sees other people looking at her, and we start to learn who we are in the light of other people's faces. Too often, we take our identity from the way that people look at us, the things they say to us, and we decide who we are on the basis of how we're perceived, whether or not we think we're loved, whether or not we've been rejected and abandoned and wounded. And those parts of existence are all just the story of broken existence. However, before any of those parts, there is something called the primacy of God. That God, for every single person, and especially for every single woman, we must conceive of God as the prime lover of our souls. 
So often when I walk with married couples and, and they're having this deep conversion or a secondary conversion, the woman's heart will be developing very quickly and she'll come to me after a meeting with both and she'll say, you know, I, I, Father, I feel God drawing me into this bond of love and it's so tender and it's so deep and I'm, I'm getting scared because I don't want to be unfaithful to my husband. I feel like I have two lovers, my spouse and my God. And then young women who aren't married yet, they have this great desire for, for natural marriage, but also this tremendous capacity to be alone with God in the interior life, and they don't know how to make sense of that with regard to their calling. What if it's not a conflict? What if those fit together? What if it's true that God would never invite us to something like a deepened interior life that would cause ill, that would destroy our vocational states? What if God is actually the primary lover of our souls and first before God we take our identity from him and coming out of that then we allow other people, those close to us and far from us, to say something about who we are. And when they say things about us that do not match what we hear in the depths of our interior life, we set those things aside and we do not give them authority. That's why we renounced before the procession. And when other people, including spouses, when other people speak things that resonate and reverberate with the truths that God speaks to us in our prayer, we know that God is speaking through mouthpieces, instruments, friends, spouses. It has to be a, a criteria that we apply to, to separating how we receive the input, the gaze, the attention, the word of other people. If that doesn't match the way God would speak to me, then I don't have to take that as authoritative. And I have to search out the Lord if I'm confused about who I am in my own prayer. Now, sometimes people will come to me and say, yeah, but listen, Father, it doesn't matter, like I, I, women in particular, it doesn't matter that you can say all these things and I know that God is the, is the prime lover of my soul and is my first love and, and wants to be in love with me and express that love. I was unwanted from the womb. I was a mistake. My parents wanted a, a boy. Uh, I didn't come when it was planned. I was, an act, I was a result of an act of violence. And so you can say those nice things, but I personally actually am I am a mistake, I am too much, I am a problem, I am a burden, I don't fit. And let me just point something out to you. I've, I've got two sisters, and I'm, I'm very close with both of them, and so I can talk about lots of things and ask them lots of questions about the life of woman and having children and all this stuff. Yesterday I texted my sister about a specific question about HCG, the hormone that releases in the body after an embryo is implanted, and she's like, wow, this is a text I never thought I'd get from my priest brother. But what I was asking, I was confirming something with her that I've been praying with for a long time. It's, it's true that sometimes our parents weren't planning for us, weren't ready for us, didn't, didn't maybe want to have a child. Maybe they wanted a boy and you were a girl. Maybe they wanted a girl and I was a boy. All those things can be true. However, they do not reach the depths of our existence to the degree that we often give them that capacity. And what I've been praying with for uh, about a year and a half now, it came to me during a retreat in direction. And, and it's been something that's been so profound to pray with. That when, when men and women come together, regardless of the circumstances, it is nine days minimum, usually about ten, before the woman will be able to test positive for pregnancy. That's the time it takes for the egg to journey to the sperm to journey to the egg, the egg to move down and implant in the uterus, the womb, and then the, that hormone to be released that shows up on the pregnancy test. Ten days minimum, nine days minimum, really minimum, if, if your mom was looking for you. And if she wasn't, it can be weeks more, sometimes months more in cases. So what that means, before anybody knew about you, before your mom or your dad knew about you, before they could level any opinion, before they had any stance toward your existence, God himself chose you to come into being in that situation 
He created you and he sustained you when you were one cell and multiplying very vulnerably through this journey in your mother's body that is a pretty remarkable journey the entire time. Every nanosecond, God was choosing you and keeping you in being and protecting you. And so the story doesn't start with whether or not you were wanted in your family or how your parents treated you or anything else, actually. The story starts with the fact that you sat alone in the womb of your mother with God, the only single one who knew that you existed. That has to be a place you go for prayer, especially as women. It's good for all of us. But if woman finds her place alone with God in the garden, alone with God in her heart, that begins alone with God in the womb before anybody else knew about her, knew about you. And, and sitting in that place and recognizing that before any other opinion and any other relationship existed, you were in relation to a perfect loving God who loved you into existence and willed that you would be the type of person that grows up with that whole story, but also grows up to be the type of woman who comes to this kind of event. So he can speak this word to you right now. That's crazy. That's crazy beautiful. And so to come back to what Claire was saying this morning, go deeply into the interior life, ladies. Go deeply, as deeply as the Lord will draw you. It's not going to cause conflict in your vocational state. If you're not married and you're afraid of a religious vocation, getting serious about the interior life doesn't mean you're going to have to be a sister. If you are married, and maybe your marriage isn't in the best place, maybe you're divorced, maybe you lost a spouse, going deeply into the interior life, all that's going to do is equip you to know God, who knows all the details of the entire story and is immensely interested in every single one of them with a burning divine desire to make all those details better and better and better. That's the great adventure that Pope Benedict cited that Archbishop just quoted to us. That's the great adventure of life in Christ, this opening of doors, this true friendship and woman has a special way of being tender and intimate and open to God in a fashion that shows us something about how the church is meant to be and how humanity is meant to flourish. Mother Mary Francis, this beautiful saint from uh, the Poor Clares in Roswell, she says, people become lovely when they are loved. And I, you've seen this, you've experienced it yourself, both my sisters. When they fell in love with their husbands, they just got more beautiful. <laughs> Like they're the same women, but they radiated, they sang differently, they, they moved differently, they started to glow. That, that we become lovely when we're loved, women especially. And, and here, I want to twist that back or bend that back into the, the prime truth. That it's God's love that makes you lovely first. And then, however relationships go, good or bad, you're not bound by, by the brokenness of those relationships because you are always welcome to return to the depth of being alone with God who gives his love to you, you experience that during the procession so that you can become lovely. How about that? It is the desire of God that you would be lovely, as lovely as is possible, that you could shine into the world an answer to this grand confusion about what woman is, who woman is, what we're meant for, what it means to be in love with God. We have to be desperately in love with God. And if we read scripture, which we have to, there's no way out of the fact that it's actually a spousal relationship with God. And I'm grateful that Father Tim talked about John 14 because I was planning to as well. So I want to lift up from where he was and expand that out a little bit. In John 14, Jesus makes that line that he's going to the Father's house. And Claire was mentioning this this morning as well. I wanna, I wanna, I've been studying Jewish texts with the help of a lot of translations 
before the time of Christ, during and after the time of Christ in the first couple centuries. And there's something about marriage at the time of Christ that, that we don't see and understand anymore. When we hear Jesus speak of himself as bridegroom, we think about marriage, we hear the wedding feast of the Lamb. We tend to look through the lens of 21st century marital theology and understanding. But at the time, marriage was actually very different and, and, and universally so for the Jews. There were actually two parts to marriage. There was a betrothal ceremony formally, and that part actually was rather um, intensely legislated because that's when marriage began, so there's a lot of rabbinic text around betrothal. And then there's a period of preparation. During the period of preparation, the bridegroom goes to his father's house, not just Jesus speaking of his heavenly father, but the father of the family is the one who set up the marriage. Typically, he arranged for his son's marriage. You'll see this in Genesis 24. That's the, the archetype. The father arranges for his son's marriage, and he sets the price of her purchase because she's leaving a family, the family of her origin, and going into a new family, the family of the father, the lineage of uh, the father of her spouse, her bridegroom. So there's a price determined by the father, what he'll pay to that family, what it's going to cost to bring this bride into a new family. And once that price is determined, the ketubah, the contract, is proclaimed, and then the bridegroom goes because his father either gives him a house or gives him rooms adjacent to his house that the bridegroom prepares. And the preparation is for the hopah, is for the wedding. And he goes back to his father's house or the house that his father's given him to prepare the rooms for the wedding celebration. And that's the second part of the ceremony, the second ceremony, really. Chronologically, consistently, chronologically distinct. And between is a period of preparation during which the bridegroom's preparing those rooms and the bride is preparing her dowry. She's preparing to, to take her possessions into his home to draw out of her family all that she has so she can go and live with him. And during that time of preparation, that is the period of waiting. That's what Jesus is referencing, but I'll come back to you, I will. During that period of time, as well, the bridegroom would typically leave the bride in the charge of his best friend, the friend of the bridegroom, the Shoshben, John the Baptist, but also, I would argue, John the Evangelist. And during that time, the friend of the bridegroom had the duty to help prepare the details for the wedding, but also to guard the bride from other suitors and to remind the bride that she's moving toward a wedding that has not yet happened so she doesn't forget, so she keeps preparing, so she's watchful and waiting because the bridegroom is sent back, Jesus says this, at an hour known only to the father. The father of the bridegroom decides when the rooms are suitable for the wedding feast and he sends the son back to bring the bride in procession as Father Tim shared with us. In Jewish homes today, traditional Jewish homes, you will often see two cups commemorating their marriage. There are two cups to the Jewish wedding. There's a betrothal cup and a wedding cup, a marriage cup, and they drink wine at both. The betrothal ceremony for the Jews at the time of Jesus was when the marriage itself was sealed, but they didn't yet live together. Evidence that this is a fact is how the gospel begins. Mary is betrothed to Joseph, but is not yet living with him. They're betrothed and legally married, but have not had the wedding feast. That, for us, is a massive revelation, actually, about the state of the church as bride. We are betrothed to God. The Father has determined the price of our purchase. You were purchased at a great price. The blood of a spotless, unblemished lamb. Behold the Lamb of God. The one who John will just later say, he's the bridegroom, I'm just the friend. 
Read through John's gospel and look for the bridegroom theme and you'll find it everywhere. And you'll get to the Last Supper and you'll notice something different. He doesn't have an account of the Last Supper but the washing of the feet. And then he gets to the cross. And upon the cross, he says something very important. He says, I thirst. I thirst. The betrothal ceremony for the Jews involves the blessing of wine, the Kiddush blessing, and then a prayer of the rabbi over the couple. And then the bridegroom drinks that wine, and then he gives some to his wife, to his spouse-to-be, and she drinks it. And when that's complete, the betrothal is accomplished. They're now married, and the bridegroom goes to prepare the place. And that's actually exactly where the church finds herself. Which eases the tension about this question of, like, how do I deal with divine intimacy? That sounds awfully sexual. It does, because that's our human experience. But we're actually, we're betrothed through this lens. We're betrothed to God. And scripture tells us that this whole thing ends in a wedding feast. The wedding feast of the Lamb, Revelation 19, 20, 21, 22. It's all there. That, the wedding feast, has not yet happened. We are betrothed to God, which means we're married, but we do not yet live together in the proper sense of the Jewish sense, the sense of the time of Christ. And so we are waiting for that feast waiting for the bridegroom to come back. As Heather said, he will come back. And he will come back and take us to himself. And we know where he's going to take us. It's publicly revealed he's taking us to the wedding feast, at which we know from Cana, at which there will be the drinking of wine. Again, the second cup. The conclusion of this entire thing, that at the time of Jesus is just normal language that's, that's understood to be what's happening. We've lost that. But I suggest it's time to, to find that again, especially because it gives us a way of praying with the Eucharist. There's a way of praying with the Eucharist and acknowledging that when the bridegroom took to the cross and he said, I thirst, having prayed over his disciples, and he receives the fruit of the vine, spoiled, of course, vinegar, and he drinks. And he says, it's finished. There's great theological debate about what's finished, but one way of reading that is that he's finished setting everything up to complete the betrothal, but the betrothal, even at the time of Christ and before, does not occur without the bride's consent. And so he set everything up from the cross so that his side can be opened, water and blood, which are the sacraments by the fathers, right? Baptism and Eucharist. But even at the time of Christ, you always mixed water with wine to dilute it. And so we could also read coming from his side the wine that is given to the bride to seal the betrothal. And that means then the Eucharist, again through this lens, is always our invitation to realize, to realize that we are married to God and we are betrothed to him, but we don't yet live with him. And then that means we draw again from scripture, this is a time of grand preparation during which there will be false suitors. There will be confusion about this wedding feast. We will become drowsy and fall asleep. We will forget our dignity. We'll begin to live, as Archbishop said, as though this world is the whole thing. We will settle down into the imminent and be endlessly frustrated. Why? Because we have been purchased at a price, and that purchase price is called the mohar. It is the wedding price, the bride price, and we are betrothed to God. That is our dignity. And, and ladies, this is why the heart of woman flowering matters so much. Because I don't know how to be a bride. I am by my baptism. We all are the church, the bride. But that's not the proper competence of man to understand innately 
the feminine dimension of spousality. We need a roadmap to that. We need guides. We need the church to remember who she is. And one way of looking at the sickness of the church today is to realize the church has forgotten she's a bride and has become an institution and an organization that settles for strategies and best practices and trying to make things work better instead of remembering, remembering that we are in the final everlasting love bond with God that passes across time under the horizon at which the current heaven and the current earth will pass away and everything will be made new. That is... That is the final song. Pope Benedict at the end of his book on eschatology says, in the final movement of heaven, when heaven becomes made new, everything breaks forth in song. In the Old Testament, over and over again, the curses that would fall upon Israel and the trials because of their infidelity, especially in Jeremiah, he'd say, the, the song of the bridegroom and the song of the bride will be silenced. That's a fruit of their infidelity. And the promise of Jeremiah, especially, is that when fidelity occurs, the song of the bridegroom and the song of the bride will be heard again. We live in a world that is so confused, so confused about who God is, about who we are, about what it means to be loved, what it means to love, what love actually is, what a woman is, what a man is. We actually have the whole roadmap given to us. And praise God for St. John Paul II, who made a lot of this very clear in his theology of the body. But we've got to learn, as a church, what it means to sing the song of the bride. What it means to be drawn up into this, this song of love that is, is coming into time now to awaken us to a destiny that when we perceive it, even if it's faint and mysterious, when we perceive it, when we know it, it changes the way we look at everything else. And we can ache for death, even. Because death means moving into something final. That's, that's what's happening in your heart, ladies, as you ache. As you pray, you're like, what is this? I'm scared. Because it feels scary to, to receive the gift of grace, divine love infused into our souls. Because what's actually happening there is we're realizing there's another way of living, a deeper way, a fuller way. A way that points us not toward the goals that we do have to set, but through them and past them to the final goal. To the wedding feast of the Lamb, which simply has not happened and in part, I'm convinced it hasn't happened because the Lord knows we are not yet ready. We don't look enough like the bride. We don't act enough like the bride. We don't have our dowry set to go. We don't have our eyes on the horizon. We're trapped in all of this. And all of this is passing away and is so disappointing. It's why the hearts of the world are broken. No matter how great we get at technology, no matter how many awesome comforts we develop, and I, I will say I like fast food, no matter how much we develop a taste for fast food and all of the other things, it's not enough. And the ache of our hearts is for something more. The only way to proceed is to receive that something more and let it burn in our souls and realize that whatever our calling, we have a destiny beyond this one. Marriage itself is going to pass away. Priesthood, religious life, consecrated life are signs. All of it is designed to get us not just to heaven generically. We have to be clear about what heaven is. Heaven is the song of the church preparing for the wedding feast that will come. And final heaven, the new heaven, is when we reach the end of this long, long, long engagement, betrothal, the culmination of the marriage at the wedding feast. These are very high ideas. And so I don't present them to you with a, a concrete step, one, two, three, and all of a sudden, we're ready for the eschaton. 
I present them to you in a fashion to just suggest that if the church gets serious about this, and, and our women get serious about this, and we look to our religious women as prime examples when they live it well of the implications of all of this, we are going to begin to look more like the bride that we actually are, and that means our struggles are going to become easier to deal with. They're not going to go away. We're going to find a much more profound confidence in dealing with a world that hates us, with a serpent that hates us, with a culture that's practically dis disintegrated. But these things aren't going to weigh as heavily upon us because we know that we don't have to fix them. We don't have to change them ourselves. We have to live in the midst of them aware that we have a Savior who's a bridegroom who's coming back because he promised and God does not fail on his word. This, this is the destiny of the church. And we need our women to sit down deeply in this so we can remember what it means to be betrothed. I would suggest that a way of praying before the Eucharist and adoration and the way of receiving the Eucharist at Mass is a way of consenting to the marriage that we're in with God. And, and the Eucharist can be seen as a betrothal feast renewed every single time where the bridegroom drinks the cup and the bride drinks the cup and it is complete, but not done. If we put too much pressure on this, we forget that it's not done and we're going there and we've got to prepare. We prepare not by getting things right and performing better, but by letting ourselves be loved because this is just all true. It's the truth of who we are before God. And when he comes to love us, he's just trying to awaken us to the truth of who we actually are. He's trying to remind us of all of this. When Jesus promises the Holy Spirit, he says the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and remind you that everything that I've taught you. And so what I want to do to conclude, rather than giving you a roadmap for how to pray with things differently, is to present these ideas to you and then invite you to constantly hide in the depths of your heart before God and know that you are home there. And the flowering of woman's heart before God is an original gift given to every single woman and the interior life is a place of dance and song. It's where your life, your song, your gifts, your heart have to come to full blossom so we can go out of prayer into the apostolate, into the streets, into the world and say, yep, it's scary out here, but I know who's coming back and I am so in love with him. That is how the world changes, by love. God our Father spoke over his bride so many times in sacred scripture. And in the scriptures, we have revealed truth that is objective, sometimes hard to receive, sometimes hard to relate to ourselves, but is objectively a revelation of who we are. And a couple of years ago at an event, I just, the Lord put on my heart to compose a love letter from the Father, which is not words of my own, but simply an assembly of scripture passages that God has spoken over creation. And I want to just speak these over you in conclusion. And I want to ask you to realize that this is the word of God who wants to be the one who gives first say to who you are, who actually wants to be the lover of your soul and the first lover, the prime lover, and the only one who has full authority to dictate who you are, how you understand yourself, and how you live. I want to ask you just to welcome that Holy Spirit that Jesus promised would remind us of everything he said and teach us everything. And we ask that that Holy Spirit would teach us a new thing, and the new thing would be more deeply aware of our identity before the Father who looks upon us in love and gently places a hand on our backs and turns us toward Jesus, his son, and says, I've made you for him.
the greatest love possible is offered to you. And I ask you to welcome him constantly in the Eucharist, constantly in prayer, constantly in reconciliation, so you can remember over and over and over again the truth of who you are, claimed for me, God would say, and for eternity. So Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would use my voice now, not to be my own, but to be the voice of you, of the Father, that you would speak through these words which are revealed publicly and for our, are for our salvation, and I ask, Holy Spirit, that you go into the hearts of each of these women now so they could receive this word, not from me and from no one, but from God. And ladies, I just ask you to open your hearts and by hearing the truth proclaimed, I ask that you would let God love you and from that love receive the truth of who you are. This is the word of God. My beloved one, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I drew you with human cords, with bands of love. I fostered you like one who raises an infant to his cheeks. Yes, you are my beloved daughter, and in you I am well pleased. I have chosen you and not cast you away. You shall be called my delight. For the Lord delights in you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. For though the mountains may fall away and the hills be shaken, my love shall never fall away from you. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Do you not perceive it? For I know well the plans I have in mind for you, plans for your welfare and not for woe, so as to give you a future full of hope. When you call me, I will listen to you. When you seek me with all your heart, I will let you find me, for I am with you. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you, I will fight for you, and I will not withdraw from you my merciful love. And my dear sisters in Christ, I just ask you to open your hearts to this last part, and I will leave you in silence that you can beg the grace to receive it. And so, my daughter, my beloved, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Behold, I'm with you always. Do not be afraid. I have called you by name and you are mine. You are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. You are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. You are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you.